um, thank you everyone for joining us and good morning uh, for those of you that are in the UK. Thanks for coming to the earlier time. This is the fourth of our virtual retour series and we will be visiting the rest of the world, hence 9am. For those of you who don't know, over the years we've had two live events cycling all over London and visiting cycling facilities in new and refurbished buildings to see what they have to offer. We've taken this year the opportunity to take Retour Virtual um, and this series of webinars kicked off with one covering London as per previous events and then we've widened our view to the rest of the UK um, and now to the rest of the world. There will be a final webinar looking at specifically Europe and if you have any projects that you think oh I'd be really interested in hearing about that or you think could contribute to this great discussion please um, let us know and there will be a link at the end. Today, for this stage of uh, our series, we have a panel of three guests from Five at Heart, based in the US, Europe, and coming to us from Australia today, the Cycling Embassy of Japan, and uh, Lendlease also coming to us from Australia today, but having covered the UK previously. Neil Webster, who's been um, a lead on, the, on active travel at Remit Consulting, but also a spokesperson for cycling throughout the industry, will be chairing the panel uh, with our guests. We're hoping to have a great conversation um, that he can lead. The rest of the team is here and will be working away in the background. George Halen and Sarah Waller, Sarah Raid and Andrew Barber are all diligently going. And you may see George and Sarah pop up as they uh, manage the chat and the polls throughout. We do really want you to contribute and ask questions. So please use the Q&A section and Neil and I will try and put those to the speakers as we go through. We will try and get to all of them. And if we can't, then I'm really sorry. Um, but there is a mug competition still going on. The best Q&A will uh, win a retour mug, which is now a coveted item. Um, and please feel free to retour, re please feel free to tweet at retour cycle. Um, and uh, we'd love to see everyone having a good time. Uh, we will be intending to finish at 10 a.m. in the UK. So without further ado, I'd really like to introduce our panelists. Panelists, first of all, we have Duncan Young. Duncan is the head of workplace health and wellbeing at Lendlease. Um, and as a fitness and health enthusiast, he continues to uh, consult with external businesses wanting to develop their own health and productivity strategies. Um, like I said, currently based in Australia um, and previously being in the UK, and I understand swam to work this morning, so really uh, practices what he preaches. Um, alongside Duncan is Chad Fairn. Chad is originally from the US and has a uh, emigrated and is now helping to or has helped to launch the cycling embassy of japan it's a really interesting different culture there um he is an urban cycling consultant where well he worked with urban cycling consultant brian kidd to promote better cycling infrastructure and build a network through the cycling community in japan last but not least we're joined by justin steers at five at heart five and heart have been a long-standing partner with remit so we're really happy to have them here and represented on retour um, justin has embraced the right to work revolution early on and understands how in sorry don't know what's going on today but how products and services can make the experience more magical he's founded fresh locker in 2010 to elevate the end of ride experience and then co-founded pfl spaces now heads up Five at Heart and is based in Australia currently, but uh, launched Five at Heart across Europe and in North America. So with everyone introduced, I'll hand off to Neil, uh, who can kick us off. Uh, morning, everybody. And um, yes, I think um, Duncan's put us to shame by, I don't know how far he's swum this morning, but um, I'm just sat in my chair, I'm afraid. Um, so um, I'm going to take Duncan to task, who actually 
um, I would regard as a sort of founder of um, this sort of um, theme and series because he was on a panel in 2012, if people can remember that day or date, um, when we um, uh, talked about this in more in terms of the impact of um, cycling on offices. And now we're elevating it to active travel in real estate more, more generally. So uh, Duncan, um, he sort of spent a life um, being well and promoting um, well-being. Um, why do you think active travel is so important for businesses these days? Thanks, Neil, and thanks for uh, welcoming me uh, back. Um, good morning, everyone. Um, I think wellness is such a key thing because there's a clear link between <clears throat> being well and having a healthy business. So um, all of us want more sleep, more meaningful conversations, uh, better nutrition, but the reality is it's harder than it looks. Um, but um, bringing in simple things into your everyday, like active commuting, and um, having good end-of-trip facilities really do make a big difference. It's interesting that um, if you look around the world at where people live healthily in their 90s and often over 100, they're not going to the gym every day. They surround themselves in environments that promote them to move um, as, a, as an everyday thing. So I think we've lost that knack. We've become a highly sedentary society, um, and especially as a knowledge worker, we need to bring back movement. Um, my daily commute is not to swim, but because I work from home, I reimagine the commute every day, which could have been a ride to work. But of course, I uh, swam my normal 1500 this morning in the ocean. The water is beautiful in Sydney at the moment. So really important that we make change frictionless for those people that want to live long and healthy lives, increasing our health span through active transport and movement per se. So thanks. So you've sort of given us a sort of broad um, overview there. I just wonder what you think um, in terms of the variation from country to country. So first, I suppose that's the sort of propensity for people to travel actively. And then I guess a sort of quick overview about what you think the infrastructure and end of trip facilities you've experienced having sort of been in the UK and, and elsewhere. And whilst you're doing that, hopefully our um, attendees and participants when well, as, as you can see, have, have told us um, which sort of countries that um, they've got experience of. At the moment, um, the US seems to be leading, but it's still going on. So um, if you want to pick up on that, thanks, um, Duncan. Yeah, no problems. Yeah, well, look, living in um, in the UK, I, was, I arrived in 2007 and left in 2013. We definitely saw an enormous growth in cycling in the UK over that period. Largely short, dense, uh, short uh, trips. I was living in Islington or, or um, Stroudgreen at the time, so it was actually quite an easy ten minutes to re um, ten to twenty minutes to Regent's Place. Um, and it is interesting that I, my personal view is, I used um, cycling as many others just to get to and from work. It was by far the easiest way to do it. it took the same amount of time as the tube, but it was just nice and easy due to the uh, climate need to shower every day because you never really got hot I found in most uh, circumstances. If we were fast forward that into Australia my view my personal view is that there's more recreation um, uh, participation rate versus traveling on cycle to work I think the stat is about 70% recreation did you cycle for recreation in the last year that was 70% and then 30% was to get to and from work so 
I think as a sporty nation, we're uh, more focused on that. But what we have seen is because stock turns over more quickly, that physical stock turns over more quickly in Australia, we have seen an arms race in attracting tenants by upgrading end-of-trip facilities. So these things are, as Justin will explain later, they are pretty phenomenal places from um, hair dryers to straighteners through to bike racks. Our, our global HQ has got about 1,100 bike racks, showers, you know, the whole concierge experience through towels. So I think anything we can do that makes being healthy frictionless, like providing a towel or the adequate uh, cycling racks, really does help. We have seen that in Australia in the last 10 years as people use their buildings to attract tenants through essentially some kind of a wellbeing mechanism. It's a pretty obvious thing. If you care about your people, then obviously it's a pretty obvious thing if you've got good end-of-trip facilities to be able to point that to say this is a physical manifestation of that. So definitely seen more of that in Australia recently, and Justin will uh, touch on that shortly. I'm looking forward to Justin telling us all about hair straighteners, so um, that's um, something to look forward yeah. to. Um, he, so, he, he overdid it. Oh, that's right. I had a very good experience. <laughs> um, so j just because I know, um, you know, of your particular, your particular locations, Duncan, so you could tell us a bit more about, you know, Regent's Place and also I think, um, is it Brangaroo in, um, in Oz? Um, you know, from your employer's perspective, what's in there and um, what your experience is of it? Yeah, look, you know, our, our um, purpose or our vision statement is together we create value through places where people thrive. So thriving people are often healthy people. Um, at Barangaroo, um, you know, we've got three large towers. It's the first carbon neutral um, precinct, I think, globally to be registered. Uh, these are big colossal places, 22,000 uh, 22, um, employees come to the three towers of Barangaroo, got a platinum wellness rating, again, 1,100 um, uh, racks downstairs, um, complimentary towels, uh, obviously showers and things like that. But we've actually physically got a concierge. So obviously you've got um, people coming to re bike repair services. You've got some contact with people when you come in. But I think, you know, Lend-Lease, like all the other big um, owners of um, properties, are definitely investing in these kind of facilities and there are some beautiful places being created currently. But I think it is really key that we um, show that we are making um, this, um, encouraging people um, to... Um, to actively commute. And the byproduct is we get these odd, odd people we call lunchtime runners participating as well. So as soon as you provide a good shower, a place to put your stuff, drying rooms and things like that, suddenly we get another range of people who have been using a facility. So I think end of trips and cycling facilities, just the part of it. And then you get all the others uh, joining in as well. So definitely a big part of um, our push to help people thrive in both life and work. Thanks, Duncan. Uh, you're the second person I know who actually sort of theoretically commutes to work by swimming because um, we remember coming across a guy in Germany who um, swims in, actually does swim to work in, in Munich. But just from the poll, um, it seems that the um, attendees um, have the least experience of Japan. So it's fantastic. We've got um, Chad to tell us a little bit more. 
Um, and we've sort of, you know, touched upon sort of, you know, different cultures and how that affects um, what end of trip and you know, activity is. Um, we know Japan's known for its Kieran racing, um, mm. but what, what is the culture for active travel in Japan, Joe? Yeah, well, again, thanks for having me here. I uh, love talking about uh, Japan and its uh, cycle community. Uh, active transit is a major thing, especially here in Tokyo. Um, uh, basically, everybody uses a bike at some point during the week, either it's to get groceries or to just get from their house to the station. And even during these COVID times, people are still using the train. Uh, so they basically will cycle at some point during the week. And walking is a, is a major thing. Uh, if you've ever been to Tokyo, you know you'll be doing a lot of walking around and there's a lot of pedestrian paths and uh, not so many cycling, uh, cycling infrastructure necessarily, but that doesn't stop people from riding their bikes. Uh, people are on their bikes all the time to do little errands around town to, to get to uh, school or to get the groceries or to get the kids off to wherever they have to go. Uh, you'll see people on their bikes all the time. And even today, it was a pretty rainy day, but uh, just looking outside, there's still people riding their bikes around. They got the whole kit on uh, and they've got the covers over the kid seats and uh, they're still out there riding their bikes. So, yeah. So, so I think you've got a few slides for us, haven't you, uh, Chad? I mean, sure. um, I could you know, pose loads more questions, but I think there's a few <laughs> things there you could um, talk us through. Yeah, um, let's see if we can. I mean, certainly um, my, my experience of, of Japan, uh, particularly in terms of um, you know, the culture, I think the one word I took back was respect. Um, and the, you know, people are quite compliant. My, I remember you know, seeing a queue for the bus that was um, a, the most, the straightest line I've ever seen. Anyway, anyway, Chad. Oh, they take their cues very serious here. Yeah, no, we're no quite good at queuing in, in the UK, you know, but um, Japan oh, yeah. Yeah, a bit more, even more serious. Take it to another level. <laughs> Very much so. Uh, in fact, shops will even hire people to stand in line in front of them when they open uh, so that it looks like it's busier. But anyway, that's a whole nother story. Um, yeah, so I, I have a few slides here that I'd just like to kind of present. It looked like about 40% of people here uh, have at least some experience with Japan. Uh, so over half haven't been here. So these are a couple pictures here of just kind of what it's like. You can see on the uh, on one side there, a lady is doing her shopping on bike. So a lot of the stations will have open shops, which means that people can just kind of scoot on by and take a look at things. And that's really good for retail. Um, and then on the other side, you can kind of see my daughter uh, going down the, a very busy street there. Uh, uh, busy as far as like visuals, but uh, it's actually pretty calm in the morning. Uh, a little bit about the cycling infrastructure that we have here in, uh, in Tokyo, it varies a lot. There's no consistent uh, bike path style. It can be like you see the tree lined path or an actual blue line. We use blue here for some reason, uh, but people are still kind of getting used to the idea of what a uh, bike lane is and uh, there's a lot of parked cars almost all the time and that's a universal problem uh, with uh, cars being in the bike lane uh, so we're, we're working hard at trying to get protected bike lanes in the city uh, but it's a it's an uphill battle uh, attitudes towards cycling uh, in japan so uh, i have this uh, see no evil speak no evil hear no evil uh, so attitudes are basically just if, if you ignore it, then 
uh, it'll probably be better. Uh, and you can see there's a little tag on a, on a bike there that has been parked illegally. Um, <laughs> uh, but basically like an, I'm, I'm an American, obviously you can tell from my accent. Uh, but, uh, in America, people kind of choose to uh, rate people based on their mode of transportation. Uh, in Tokyo, there's nothing like that. So if you take the train or if you take a bike to work or even it doesn't matter what kind of bike you're using, uh, nobody really judges anybody on that sort of thing. And that's quite a nice kind of relief that you can just choose whatever is the best mode of transportation. And most people choose uh, the bicycle for their normal everyday getting around town. Uh, we have a lot of different types of bikes, uh, but the most common one is this uh, kind of standard bike with a basket on the front. It's called a mamachari, and uh, uh, it's the easiest and best way to get around. Uh, and you don't have to worry about it because usually you have your really nice bike uh, that you keep in your apartment, and you only take that out on the weekend. And then you have your mamachari, your uh, just kind of uh, junk bike that you can use uh, if it's raining outside. So. Uh, you can also see that uh, on a morning commute, if it's a nice day, you can get a whole plethora of different people out there on the streets. We don't really have a lot of bike lanes, uh, so everybody just kind of crowds around the street. Uh, you can see here you've got a mom and an office worker, a salaryman, a uh, delivery guy and students, and they all just kind of merge together on their way to work in the morning. And also you've got people like me, uh, you can see there, uh, that's uh, Brad, my other tour guide uh, friend, and he's, uh, you know, living, living life. And uh, also, uh, it doesn't matter what kind of weather it is out there. People are out there all the time. So uh, they have their umbrellas and you're not supposed to ride your bike with the umbrella, but uh, people do it all the time because you're going to ride your bike. There's one thing that is kind of different. Uh, so there's two kind of camps that we have in Japan, and I'm sure this is similar in other parts of the world, where you have your, your bicyclists, which are the kind of recreational cyclists, the people who go out on the weekend, uh, have all the kit and the really nice bike. And then you have the cyclists, and those are just everyday people just getting to work. We don't have any like uh, helmet laws or anything like that. And people don't really wear special clothes when they go to work. They just wear whatever they're going to wear for the day. And the, the seasonality of things means that in summer you wear your suit but uh, when you get to work you uh, you just kind of deal with it being hot. Uh, people don't cycle very fast here and so you don't get really sweaty uh, even in the, the heat of the summer uh, it's still manageable. Uh, we'll go quickly through this. Uh, the police uh, one of the reasons why like cycling kind of works here uh, is because enforcement is actually pretty low so there's not actually like active enforcement uh, other than the picture there where you see the police kind of running after the cyclist. Uh, otherwise you basically can, as long as you're not breaking the rules in a way that's really affecting everybody, uh, they just kind of let it go. Uh, you can see here a few people breaking some of the rules and nobody minds. Uh, so as part of the cycling embassy of Japan, we obviously have a lot of uh, ideas about how to make cycling even better. Uh, we don't actually have to worry so much here in Japan about people uh, not riding their bikes. Everybody already is riding their bikes. We just want to make it safer for them. So on this thing, we can see here that uh, we just want to have all the streets have good protection against the cars and can be in a safe lane. 
Uh, we want it to be safe, comfortable, and continuous. The one issue that we have in Japan is that we have some bike lanes, but they don't actually link to anything else. So continuity is actually very important. We want to always keep the barriers to cycling very low. So we don't want to have any helmet laws that are mandatory. Uh, that kind of can restrict a certain amount of people who want to actually ride their bike. You can see that we have moms and kids and uh, old people out there on their bikes, and none of them actually would do that regularly if they all had to put a helmet on every day. So just on that We'd, point, Chad, I yeah. think I'm right in saying, Justin, isn't it, um, it's compulsory for um, helmets in Australia, isn't it? That, that is correct. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, something of a c contrast there. So I'm wondering, mm. um, Chad, if um, you can pick up uh, as you go along um, in relation to what, what you think now is that sort of re real estate response to uh, what you've articulated in terms of the culture, the nature of active travel. And you know, I think you told me you know, when we were talking some other time about um, it's not the um, you know, level of activity that's you know, being to, it, to be encouraged. It's the facilities. So you know, what is it in terms of facilities and real estate that is the response in, in Japan? So one of our biggest things is that we want to always continue to increase bicycle parking. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of people who are out there on their bikes already. They just need a place to put their bikes at the end of their journey. And a lot of places are kind of getting on board with this. Um, we can see here that a lot of buildings that have been built in the in recent uh times uh, actually have a bicycle parking lot in them so these are uh, department stores or large office buildings and they have an entire floor dedicated to bicycle parking sometimes it's even on the eighth or ninth floor you actually bring your bike up uh, in an elevator all the way up to those floors um, also, all of the stations have bicycle parking areas, and the stations that uh, get a lot of attention get even uh, larger bicycle parking lots. Uh, and so in the bottom corner, you can actually see a very large parking lot. That's at Shinjuku Station. And Shinjuku Station has about millions of, of people commuting through it every day. And uh, so they need actually a decent size bicycle parking lot just to handle that. And it is becoming a destination. So about five years ago, Shinjuku had very little bicycle parking and nobody wanted to go there on the weekend to do any shopping or to do anything uh, because they couldn't park their bike anywhere. And so now they've added a lot of on-street bike parking and also these bike parking facilities at the station. So people feel that they can actually cycle in, do some shopping, get the latest camera from Yodabashi and, uh, and take off. This has a, uh, we, sorry, just back on that photo, yeah. Chad, that has a, uh, gives a feel more like you know the Netherlands really where we've seen places <laughs> like Amsterdam Rotterdam and the like with just thousands and thousands of bicycles so yeah um you know I think there are some similarities so absolutely uh, a, a, any, a, any a culture that just, has sorry Chad a question's just come in yeah. actually which um I think yeah. is quite interesting is it, it what's the you know, what's the level of, of cycle theft in Japan <laughs> theft in general is pretty low uh, even in Tokyo where we have the biggest city uh, bicycle theft uh, used to be one of the things that was kind of higher than other kinds of uh, uh, like thievery so people would steal umbrellas and people could steal bikes but actually in, in later uh, lately because of these bicycle parking lots that automatically lock your bike uh, we don't have very much theft, unless you have a really, really nice bike that somebody wants to uh, nick from your 
parking lot uh, in general, we don't really have very much theft. So you can leave your bike unlocked on the street almost all day and it'll still be there when you come back. And that's more of a culture thing. It yeah, uh, yeah. might not work in other parts of the world. <laughs> uh, keep going. I know there's a couple more, but um, we've got some really yeah, good sure. questions so, coming in actually. One of the uh, people probably have seen this online where we, uh, Tokyo has these, you know, automatic parking garages where you can uh, put your bike into this and a robot will, will park it for you. Uh, we do have them. It's just, it's very expensive for people to, uh, for, for municipalities to actually put these in. Uh, companies don't really use them and users don't really prefer to use them because they like easy access to their bike. Uh, especially if there's an earthquake, which we do get quite often, uh, people would rather just be able to go over, grab their bike from uh, a street level uh, bicycle parking lot. Uh, here's kind of what it looks like inside on this little model. Uh, you can see some off street parking here. Uh, again, like you were saying with Amsterdam, uh, any, any cycling city will have this kind of picture uh, where you just see massive amounts of, of bicycles. Uh, but what is interesting is just the variety of different bikes. Uh, you can see a lot of them uh, in that middle picture. You can see a lot with uh, child seats on the back. This is the basic way of getting your family around town, especially on the weekends, uh, is to put a child on the back. And maybe there's even a front uh, seat for the smaller one. And uh, that's how you get the whole family to soccer practice or uh, off to the store or to the park is uh, by carrying them on the bike. And it also encourages uh, the parents to get the kids to learn how to ride their bike a lot sooner because they don't want to have to lug them around on their bike. But a lot of these bikes are also electric assist and you've seen the number of electric assist bikes go up a lot, especially during the pandemic. Uh, just people have been going out and, and buying these uh, electrical assist bikes. They're a bit more expensive, but uh, it is encouraging people to uh, to ride their bikes. And by electric assist, it's not full electric. It's actually you're pedaling, and then it just kind of helps you up the hill uh, when the torque oh. is too much. Um, Chad, we've got some pretty good questions coming in, which are sort of Japan-focused, yeah. but I'm just going to move on to uh, Justin, if you don't mind. We can always come back yeah, to go <laughs> of course. slides if, if necessary. <laughs> Um, so, yeah. Justin, I wonder if you've got any sort, or even Duncan at the moment, any reflections on what you've heard so far from, from Chad about Japan. Um, and then, you know, you could take it on a bit more and you know, just take us around the world, Justin. Yeah, most definitely. I've been taking lots of notes here. Uh, thanks, Chad. That's very, very insightful. I'm, I'm definitely one person on the panel. Good to have you here because I don't know a lot of, about Japan. So I'll definitely defer to you when it comes to amenities and office buildings, but definitely a lot of synergies between Japan and Europe that I can see. So we talk about the no helmet laws and, you know, Australia and, and the US do have helmet laws. So I think there's, you know, that, that kind of delineation there between where there is a higher uh, proportion of people that do utilise cycling, it's more normalised is something that I've written, written down is uh, definitely interesting. And I think also the amount of station parking that you have there and, and public parking is another thing that's very similar with 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 Europe um, and yeah so I just think that that's that's very very interesting and, and most probably also uh, depending on the 
the time of year, but uh, the sweatiness also is another factor. And I know Duncan alluded to that with with Australia. Uh, I mean, coming from from London and, and cycling every day to, to trying to do it over here and, and being a, a sweaty mess when I got to the office, it, it definitely uh, is, is reason for having a good shower facility. But that, that's my my key takeouts. Uh, just a just a question before I get into facilities around the around other parts of the world, but but in Japan Japan while we're on them, what with the office parking chat and just the, the people active commuting, how how popular is that? How how how's the uh, ridership I suppose into the office? So we have about a sixteen percent modal share for cycling to work, uh, and that sounds pretty high, but. I think it's actually even higher uh, just because people don't actually cycle all the way to work. There's a lot of office buildings that are being built right now that have bicycle parking facilities, not necessarily the, the beautiful lockers and shower rooms and all of that kind of stuff, uh, but they actually you know, have a bike, bike parking area. Uh, but for the majority of people who actually ride their bike to work, uh, they will park near the station or even near a station near their office because uh, companies in Japan will actually have insurance for that covers the commute to work. And some companies don't actually cover cycling as part of that coverage. And so they actively encourage their employees to not cycle to work. But that actually doesn't stop people from cycling to work. What they do is they have a little trick where they ride their bike uh, to a station near where they work, and then they'll hop on the train uh, and then take the train to work from there. And a lot of people also who live on the outskirts of Tokyo, they will cycle to the station from their house uh, just to save that walking commute time and then park at the station near their house and then take the train in. So there's a lot of uh, multimodal transit going on and uh, the bicycle is an integral part, part in that. So. Wow, <laughs> sounds like you need some Bromptons down there for that multimodal <laughs> travel. <laughs> but taking your bike on the train is a whole nother story. So you can have a Brompton, but the bicycle on the train rule is that the bike has to be completely covered in a bag so that you cannot see that it is a, uh, a bicycle or any little bit of it that's exposed. Even the, uh, the saddle uh, is a no-go. So you have to have a completely covered bike uh, on the train because you of course we have packed trains and nobody wants to get their uh, fancy shoes uh, dirty by your bike uh, rubbing against them so uh, yeah it, there's a there's a whole lot of reasons why people do what they do here Justin wow. before you just continue there I think you know there's a point that the two of you have raised quite well there and that's the importance of the multimodal aspect of you know travel and, act and active travel and I think there's a sort of view for many that you know people only have one form of travel don't they um which is a perfect time for us to put up a poll i think sarah because you know we think that people have various forms of active travel so very much just just wants to comment on um how they uh, go into work and the sort of things that the, they take part in and if if, if 90 percent say other we've got this um slightly wrong um but anyway, um, Justin, whilst that's up, um, please do carry on. And I think you've given a great um, plug to one of our attendees, by the way. I won't um, rename the, the brand you re referred to, but um, right. we, we do have I, one I, of their people on, on, on the call. But. Excellent. Well, I hope, I hope my Brompton's in the mail. Oh, you've done it again. <laughs> uh, 
Anyway, I was going to start off with a poll, but we'll hold off hold off there. And I was going to thank everyone for coming today because I thought you would have, you know, most people should be in the pub, but that's not until the start of the month. Is that right? So uh, there's an extra day. So you've just you've just got in now. Now we can get outside the pub. We can't get right. inside the pub okay. at the moment. So, so. so people might be sitting outside listening to the exactly. Well, it's, uh, probably exactly. too early. It's not not too early over here. But yeah, thanks everyone for attending. It's great to be here. Uh, in the in the company of uh, of the, the other panelists that we have, and it has been very insightful. So, my job is to talk about the, the culture and the the wellness, and what does that mean from a facility perspective. So, hopefully, I can give you some insight into that. And <clears throat> starting with UK, and Duncan talked about cycling is more of a mode of transport and that that is most definitely something that I experience and I think there's a lot of research that talks about the fact that if you do utilize cycling as a, a mode of transport you're less inclined to do it recreationally as well which probably flies a little bit in face of what you're saying Chad but maybe it comes with the the helmet laws and and the type of environments you've got as well but that's very much what we found when I landed on the shores. The type of facilities in, in the UK would be that they would traditionally have a higher quantum of amenity, but generally more utilitarian. And, and I, that's just based on the fact that you, you're trying to accommodate the, the, the amount of cyclists that you have there. And I think also from a, from a climate perspective, you're not getting as sweaty, uh, most people are, are cycling in their, their gear that they're wearing to work. So the focus or requirement on your change rooms isn't as, as high as, as it is in other countries, as I'll, I'll talk about. But there is also, as again, Duncan alluded to, the fact that this isn't just about bikes. This is about health and well-being in general. So these are, these are more and should be seen as more wellness centres and having connection between the amenities. So uh, Change rooms and other f facilities, as we talk about, are definitely important. Some we, we've definitely seen a shift in the market. Some of the projects we've been involved in, and, and check out our website. You can see more images. I'm sure on the next uh, physical retour, and some of the, one of the other physical retours that we had. I think the first one, you know, the second one, where you visited some of these sites. But 22 Bishopsgate, the Bureau, Riverscape all have amenities where that quality is starting to come to the fore. And we're working on schemes, including Olympia, uh, that have still a high quantum of, of uh, facility, but they also are focusing now on the, on the quality. So that's, that's great to see that coming through. If I move across to North America, active commuting isn't really a, a thing uh, and we didn't, we didn't really talk about that from a, from a wellness perspective, but I, I have been quoted in Velocity magazine as saying that they're very much a, a petrol-guzzling culture still. Um, and uh, North from a North American perspective, Chad, I don't know if you would, would agree with me. Very much yeah, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, health and well-being, I mean, people over there are still, still kind of fit and active. Uh, the fitness centres have been a fabric of buildings for a long time, but bike rooms are not seen as part of that co-amenity. So when I talk about, you know, having connection and, and having these amenities seen as a whole, that is not the case over there. And they're, they're small spaces, basic spec, minimal amenity, 
and generally located in in the in the garages of of these buildings. Uh, just, good... Justin, can I just bring a question in there? Because um, it's, really, it's really good um, to to link it to that. So uh, Mike's asked us about um, you know well um, America. He's calling it. I think I'm assuming he's you referred to North America. Um, but what I mean, any of you, please go. What what can the US and North America generally do to adapt to a more sustainable way of transportation? So this is coming back to the sort of you know behavior change. I don't know if Duncan's got a view about that, but you know that's a question really we can pose to all of you really there. Yeah, look, I can jump in. Um, you know, if we look at Australia and North America, I think are quite similar in terms of their car-based culture. Chad touched on the fact that, um, you know, if you've got a fancy Tirana or a pumped-up Ford 150, you actually identify with um, your car, not nearly um, having a bike. You know, I'm, I personally um, rather collect bikes. I've got a couple of Bromptons that I go on family holidays. And I'm a big mixed-mode person, so I actually ride my pushy to swimming. I ride that to the ferry that comes on the ferry with me. So I think there's a whole thing about you don't need to be a cyclist or active transport for it to be your entire um, end of trip, which is a Shinjuku example we heard earlier. Um, but we've got a long way to go. Australia, I believe, and Justin will probably correct this, that, but um, a couple of years ago, I think literally what you can hope for is about 5% of your work community cycling, and that's a high level. Um, and most of those, 80% of those are going to be men. So we've not only got to look at the infrastructure, we've got to look at by gender, um, but we do see glimmers of hope. Um, some of the leaders and managers I sort of coach, I do executive coaching, actually ride to work and I say, hey, why are you riding to work? They say, it gives me autonomy. I can grab the bike at any time and bolt home. So for them, they go, man, it's a speed thing. Obviously, um, to live near work in Sydney, you've got to have a lot of loot. But um, it does show that we can look at cycling in this as a whole, as a small part of a whole approach to how we keep fit when we uh, actively commute. Um, so that will be my take on it. Thanks. And um, that might uh, take us to that other poll, actually, because um, you, you referenced a few cars there, Duncan. Um, let's use those as the benchmark. Um, you know, how many um, bikes do people think they could fit into a, um, a typical car space? So um, get get voting there. We, I don't know if you want to come in, Chad, or we go back to Justin. It's entirely up to you. Uh, let's go back to Justin. Uh, yeah. my, my only point was just about, you know, how if you can get uh, women on, on bikes, especially uh, uh, younger ladies, uh, you're actually proving that it's safe to be out there. If you can get a mom with her kids on her bike out on the streets, you've created safe enough infrastructure uh, or a safe enough city at least uh, that they feel confident to be able to go around. It's a, it's a big marker of a good cycling city. Yeah. So Justin, you can go anywhere you want now. You've got some results yeah. on your um, uh, number of bikes. Of course, they presumably weren't folding bikes, yeah? Um, That's right. I stopped you in full flow on um, you know, continuing your thoughts. So. No, no, I think that this is what it's about, right? Steering, steering the bike where it's uh, where it's going to push. So. Uh, well, that's that's interesting. Well done. Like fifteen is is actually the answer there, guys. So, uh, applause to you all. 
Um, I suppose, again, it does depend, as Neil said earlier, what what uh, country you're in and the size of the, the car space or the size of the car or the size of the bike. So you could all be right. But uh, just kind of moving on from and, and finishing off on North America <clears throat> before we roll on to Australia. So just to, if you look at a building, it's always good to be able to picture something. But if, if everyone wants to Google, if they haven't seen it before, the Salesforce Tower in San, San Francisco, it, it is a, um, it's a spectacle. It definitely stands out on the skyline. Um, and you look at that building and say, <clears throat> they must have a lot of bike parks, particularly if you are based in London. Uh, but that, that building actually has 280 bike parks and it's a one and a half um, million square foot building. So that equates to, if you think around a, a 12 to a 12 square metre um, occupancy uh, rate, you've got, sorry, occupancy, uh, you, that's about 2% of the tenants. But in general in America, I'd say that's, that's high. It's probably less than 1% of bike parking accommodation um, per occupant. So there definitely does need to be some radical change over there. And I think I think the guys have hit on some very key points there. It's about the level of amenity. I think it's about that kind of holistic view to the, the spaces. It's about the helmet laws. And I don't want to open up a can of worms there, um, but also the infrastructure that leads to the facilities because you, you can have the best facilities in the, in the world, uh, but if, if people don't feel safe getting there um, or don't, don't feel that uh, it's an inclusive type um, environment then they're not going to do it but i'm not going to slam north america anymore um, they actually do uh, do some things pretty well i'm just going to share my screen for a, a second uh, if i can here and a couple of those things are leading the way in repurposing of of space so it's a couple of images that i'll i'll relate and we look this is out of our design some of our design principles but front of house is is very critical if we want people to use these spaces and we want them to when they they need to be front and center they need to be inclusive as we talked about and this is actually an image of a building in in us uh where the you can see that the bikes are visible from the street um there's the access straight off the street um so that's the type of um type of thing we want to be seeing this is this is actually broad street in new york similar similar kind of uh, arrangement here we've got access directly off the street these are flailing retail areas where the owners have decided well let's turn them into into uh, active kind of bike rooms which i think is a is a great um a great initiative the other the other thing is uh bank vaults as well we've seen so if we come down and this is probably more if we were to look at uh, sustainability so I'm just going to jump around a bit here but and and Duncan alluded to this is a net carbon zero and obviously this is becoming a big focus for a lot of uh, a lot of landlords and for consultants as well a lot of money to be made there I'm sure but uh, this repurposing of existing buildings and there's no better exemplar of this than the spruce goose hangar in LA. So this is actually a, the building here. It was uh, featured in um, The Aviator uh, for those movie buffs out there. But this is actually now Google's headquarters in LA. Um, 
very sustainable, you know, exposed timber, a uh, lot of open space. It's got a, a bike park, which um, has our product in there, which is, which is amazing. Still not very big when you, when you look at it. That's about the extent of it. But um, they're actually uh, still including that and, and repurposing space, which is great. This is an interesting one. So this is an, an old bank vault. In, in Montgomery uh, Avenue in San Francisco. But again, you can see they've gone, well, we're not going to be able to move this thing, so let's turn it into a bike park. So some really interesting things happening in America as far as, you know, on-ground, front-of-house presence of bike parking, uh, but also repurposing of space, which I think can be lessons learned and we're starting to see in real estate across, across the globe anyway. And certain cities bucking the trend. I mean, Denver, Chicago, San Francisco, and Toronto, um, where we're starting to be very active, um, is, is a city that is, is very similar um, to London and, and Sydney as far as the type of in infrastructure and the quality of amenity that they're starting to put in. Justin, sorry, we've just got a question that I think this sort of leads into. Um, We've been talking a lot about it's not so much US specific, so this could be for kind of anyone, but um, there's been a question about there's a lot of focus on facilities when people get to work and how you have storage once you get to work. Um, so are resi developers and landlords missing something with access and bike storage at at home, you know, where people live? Obviously, like in London and, uh, you know, the US big cities in Sydney, there's a lot of apartments. Um and Chad, I think you alluded to the, you keep your bike in your apartment. I know a lot of people in London who carry them up their stairs. Um, do you think that's where kind of resi developers and landlords are missing the trick? Is that an issue? Do you see? I might just pick up there while we're waiting for Chad, but we're definitely, we've definitely seen in a lot of instances where people that are using good facilities at work are then championing, championing, I should say, for, for good amenity at, at their home as well, particularly when they live in multi-dwelling type arrangements, body corporate, corporate arrangements. So I think it is most definitely important that uh, there is an, an emphasis on, on that. I mean, multi-dwelling has always been an issue because uh, it's generally been a, a tick and flick from a development perspective and quality isn't the, the highest focus, but build to rent, which is obviously big in the UK, it's starting to become a thing down here in Australia as well, starting to see a more quality amenity across the building. And that includes both your, uh, not, not your end of trip, your starter trip amenity, uh, but also the collaboration type spaces and office spaces that these types of buildings have as well. Thanks, Justin. I think that um, what we're moving into is something that is a theme we've touched on before, really, which is that, um, you know, back in 2012, back in that time when Duncan was on the, the panel, we were sort of almost sort of going, oh, please, can we have something? Yeah. And now we're talking about a huge variety of it. And yes, we were talking about end of trip, but um, we've got a question from, and I won't name, but um, actually the co-chair of the all party um, uh, cycling and walking um, group um, in Parliament in the UK. Um, so as reference to particular uh, products uh, in the UK, but um, suggesting that most people don't have the benefits of the sort of workplace that you're talking about, are you three? 
Yeah. So what can the property world do to raise the bar that impacts on public realm and other workplaces and employees, which is almost exactly the question we're posing at, at the start of this retour. So um, I'd like each of the three of you to, to pick that up um, and um, either hand up or just shout out. So go for it. I'm happy to go first. So one of the things is um, uh, this is broadly applicable at any health and wellbeing level. The biggest change you see is from doing nothing to doing something. Um, we find that the most powerful programs from a health and wellbeing point of view have relatable role models who can influence and showcase the kind of even small changes for me, riding to the ferry and then the ferry to work. You need to vote with your feet um, and then vote the right um, people into power who prioritise active transport as a mode of uh, transport for society, um, safer, less pollution, uh, fitness, bump into people and all the rest. So at any level you can influence, whether it's at home, you can get a Brompton or a fold-up bike or something. At work, you can lobby um, to um, improve the end of trips. But even if you don't have an end of trip, you can still get a decent lock and leave your bike outside. We just need to do the best we can with this, um, this situation that we've got. In Australia, we're blessed um, often with some great end of trip facilities, but it doesn't stop those who don't have any facilities cycling either. So and that will be my take. Just a quick yes or no, Duncan. Do you have... Um cycling lobby groups in the in Oz in the same way that we have in in London London cycling campaign and such um yeah look there are some uh, groups I wouldn't say they're nearly as powerful of what you've got uh in the UK but there are membership based groups that lobby political parties etc to provide everyone's got a part to pay from an infrastructure point of view that's largely the government from a workplace point of view largely employees and then there's the individual point of view what can I do so we've all got to um, do our bit is my view. Thanks and Chad you, I think you touched on this slightly anyway but because um, I think we've said that you know there is definitely the demand that people want to but actually employers are, are stopping people so um, are, are, are the Japanese somebody who like to campaign um, you know through people like yourselves or you know what, or, or what is it that they can do? Yeah, rocking the boat is uh, definitely not something that Japanese like to do. Uh, stay in the line uh, is definitely uh, how things work here. But uh, yeah, that's the biggest thing I was going to suggest, like uh, having employees uh, try to speak up a little bit more about wanting the facilities. Uh, if you can get uh, bosses to be the ones who are actually adopting it, that's where the change actually happens. Because in Japan, everything happens from the top down. And so if you get one of these CEO or big bosses to actually commute by bike to work, uh, that will move things forward uh, in a big way. Uh, employees themselves can ask for uh, these companies to actually include cycling to work in the insurance policies. That's something that we've worked with a few groups with. Uh, and then also just the general kind of uh, push that, uh, uh, that the government is saying that they want to have more uh, active transit and so they should encourage companies uh, as the government does to uh, allow their employees to cycle to work. Thanks. And I know so Justin and I've had um, many a caffeine 
um, over this topic. So I know Justin so won't hold back on it. Um, back to you, Justin, on this one. Yeah, look, I think if if you're in, and a lot of people that are on this call uh, are in positions of, of power in in the office industry and, and can uh, can influence. But ultimately, I think it's about caring. Um, and with with that care, I mean that uh, with with developments, redevelopments, and I know that this is stipulated as part of that as well. But if we talk about the public realm, that we have, there is actually consideration of, of the public public realm and, and what does that mean for active commuting and, and people moving and that should that shouldn't just be a tick the box or an afterthought it should actually be part of the planning and if we talk about that infrastructure and how people get to an office uh, one of the things that um, we've most definitely tried to uh, champion um, as part of our work is that there is a, a process of thinking about, how are people commuting to my building? What's the safe ways of travel uh, for people uh, if they are to um, take active active transport? And I know British Land, Roger Madeline, uh, they actually did a fair bit of uh, modelling of that um, as part of the development. And I think that's the type of thing that should be should be happening. Um, the other thing that that I think is uh, important, and this is where landlords do have the space is to actually develop uh, public amenity uh, that can be can be shared across other owners um, across other people that may not have access to facilities and I know that that's something that TFL and a lot of their planning meetings with developments that we've been involved in are trying to get people to do is to think outside the, the, the square think outside the box and I know as, as per previous uh, webinars that that is something that's starting to evolve now is this concept of, of public amenities that could be shared. Yeah, and that's uh, the subject of one um, specific question which talks about um, what it is, you know, for visitors and for um, people who aren't actually, you know, tenants in, in buildings. Um, we're sort of running out of time, so I'm going to sort of um, move to sort of um, almost closing questions. So there's one that's more about the operation. So we talked about sort of, you know, the planning piece, we've talked about the um, implementation, but there's a question about facilities management. So, you know, what's the impact to the facilities management and the facilities management industry about the inclusion of cycling amenities into real estate? I'm not, I don't know if everybody can answer that question, but um, does anybody want to start it off? I'm, I'm happy to quickly. Yeah. It's something that, most definitely has to be considered. I don't think you can just put in amenity and, and set and forget. Uh, it, it very much comes down to setting expectations, having terms and conditions is, is really important, I think, and getting your users to sign up to those. Um, and that's that's something we've worked with a, with a few owners on is, is having those. And that's not the rule book like it is in Japan, Japan and chasing people down the street. But I think you have to set some ground rules around the use of these amenities. And then I, I think there just has to be good follow up from a from a maintenance perspective, uh, also making sure that you have good service within the facility, as Duncan talked about earlier, with you know the likes of towels and soap and uh, making sure those hair dryers and straighteners are working, even though I don't care less about them. Um, so that that's some of the the key things I think are are important around the the facility management. And 
the larger the facility gets, I mean, I think once you get over you know, a thousand bikes, thousand lockers, and you, you probably need to look at starting to staff these amenities as well. Um, they, it becomes an extension of your, your ground floor lobby to a degree. So having a, a concierge type service. Yeah. Now I know that um, we should be referencing um, our favourite magazine, Velocity, who've been um, supporting us. And I know that uh, various of the participants have contributed to that. But um, if anybody wants to look at, uh, particularly on the facility management side, there is an article in FMJ um, over the last two or three weeks, and I won't reference who wrote it. Um, and there'll be something coming up on the back of this uh, webinar in the World Built Environment um, Forum uh, shortly. But sadly, we've reached that time at which I have to say that um, we've run out of time and I'd love to continue the conversation. I might do as I uh, jump off the call afterwards with our, our panellists. So uh, I'd like to say thanks to the three of them for their contributions. I'd also like to say thanks for all the questions. We haven't been able to take them, but there will be at least one mug uh, finding its way to, to somebody. So this is the point I hand back to Melissa and um, take a little bit of breath myself. Yeah, really, I just want to say thank you to everyone. Um, thank you to the panel. It's been really interesting. Um, it's been really interesting also to have this conversation following the three other uh, webinars that we've had where we've looked kind of in more detail at specific buildings. So to hear about it from different cultures and different perspectives um, around the world has been, has been great. Um, thank you so much to all of you that have joined us and for asking your questions. I've been reading them and if we didn't get to them, I'm so sorry. We can try and go through and have a look and um, if there is some way to answer them, I will try and get that done. Um, there will be a write-up on, on the website and there should be information coming out to you shortly. Um, there will be one more, as I said, it will be on the 10th of June um, at our more normal time of uh, five o'clock um, in the UK. Um, that will cover Europe. Um, so please, please sign up. Um, also, please tell your friends and on social media. There is a LinkedIn group. You might have seen some posts flying around. So, so please follow us. Um, there will be a link in the chat to the next one as we close down um, and the write-up will be available. So thank you so much. Um, have a lovely Thursday. Mm -hmm.